This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to the Global Supply Chain Week Summit here at FreightWaves. I'm John Kingston, the editor-at-large at FreightWaves. I was happy to represent FreightWaves in January, speaking at the long-standing aluminum symposium held by S&P Global Commodities Insight, which houses the former Platts Group. I got a chance to introduce FreightWaves and Sonar to that part of the metals world. Also speaking at that conference was John Harms. John is the Vice President of Corporate Advisory and Banking at Brown Brothers Harriman, and the supply chain is his key area of his focus. And as John spoke, I thought, we've got to get this guy for Global Supply Chain Week. And so we did. So, John, welcome to uh, Platts, excuse me, to FreightWaves GSCW. Yeah, thanks a lot, John. It's, uh, it's my first time being part of GSCW, but um, I, I've tuned in in the past, and hopefully I live up to the expectations of, of the other speakers who've, who've been pretty great over the years. All right. I, I think you will. I have no doubt. Um, why don't you talk a little bit first about what you do at Brown Brothers Harriman? Yeah. So Brown Brothers Harriman is a, a 200-year-old privately owned bank uh, that actually started as a physical commodity trading and distribution firm back in 1818. Um, fast forward 200 years, we're still privately owned and we're still focused on providing capital and advice to companies that are trading, distributing, transporting physical commodities all over the world. Um, now, being a privately owned bank where we're entirely owned by 32 partners is a little, some say, anachronistic uh, in this day and age, and it's, it's definitely a little bit unusual, but it leads us to focus uh, and, and to try to serve clients that look a lot like us. So those are clients that are family-owned, um, founder-led businesses, partner-led businesses, where the key executives have a lot of skin in the game, they're focused on their business, and we can come in, try to advise them and provide capital to their businesses to help them grow, uh, provide that advice around transitioning their business, and, and ultimately help them diversify their liquid wealth um, through uh, through a, a pretty large um, private wealth management and, and multifamily office investment platform. So that's a long-winded way. But you might be in an it's a long-winded way. I was going to say, you might be in an anachronism, but 205 years of operation, you must be doing something right. Yeah, I'm, I'm so, remarkably well-preserved for 205 years, for sure. Yeah. So, so the, when, when I was at the Aluminum Symposium and you were making your presentation, the thing that really caught my attention, caught my ear, was your talk about tariffs. You know, it's, it's easy to forget that the Trump-era tariffs are still in place. Joe Biden did not make them a big campaign issue. And even though really those tariffs were a total break from the trade policies of multiple predecessors, they're still in place. And you really don't hear that much discussion about the impact that they're having on the supply chain, on supplies and prices. And you said they are, that they are definitely still a factor. Do you want to talk about where you see them really hitting the supply chain? Yeah. So, you know, just setting the stage for this, right? The, the, the last 30 years were an era driven by reduced tariffs, reduced barriers to trade, and global and global trade flourished as a percentage of global GDP. Um, and we've really, we really started to see that start to recede uh, even before, uh, start to decelerate rather, before the Trump tariffs. And the Trump tariffs were, you know, maybe maybe the first shot that got companies thinking seriously about diversifying their supply chains, 
whether it's reshoring, friendshoring, whatever you want to call it. Um, but that was really kind of the opening salvo, um, and and we've seen a bunch of in, we've seen a, a bunch of factors come into play since then that have really accelerated that change. And it's no surprise those things are you know the COVID lockdowns and the impact um, from China production. Uh, we've seen you know geopolitical events, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has, and the resulting sanctions and, and tariffs have have really rejiggered the global supply chain. Um, and we don't see that. We don't see that slowing down, unfortunately, um, and and all that is going to lead to you know sustained higher volatility throughout commod throughout all the commodity sectors and sustained volatility around all the transportation and logistics assets too, because as that supply chain web shifts, um, not every asset that was efficient is going to be efficient anymore, and it's really just the start of, of things to come. So what are some of the supply chains that you think have been impacted most by these tariffs? Yeah, so, I mean, the most obvious example, right, is is crude and refined products. Um, you know, before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russia was a major supplier um, of natural gas and crude oil to Western Europe. Um, after the invasion and, and, and through to today, uh, that supply chain has been really effectively um, disintermediated, I guess is a word, right? Where instead of crude oil and refined products flowing to its, you know, most natural, uh, lowest, uh, you know, most efficient buyer, these products are being shipped significantly longer distances. Crude oil is now flowing uh, to refineries in India and China. And that gasoline and diesel is then flowing back to Northern Europe and and the U.S. And so if you look at the, the you know, the, the shipborne cargo days, right? And that's that's the amount of time that energy products are, are on the water. Um, those voyages have gotten significantly longer. Um, and they've also, uh, they've also shifted from being, uh, from being carried on very large, efficient ships that are, that are tailor made to carry, carry product between two points for a long period of time. They're being shifted to smaller, more nimble vessels that are able to call on different ports of call and deliver fuel when it's needed, where it's needed, to a variety of different customers. Um, yeah, you know, you always talk in economics class, you learn about like the incidence of taxation. So when you get in a situation like this, the incidence is who is paying for this. I think conventional wisdom is that the uh, the Russians are paying for this. Uh, they're the ones that have to ship their oil, their crude oil, and their oil products further and further away. Uh, so they're essentially taking the blow on their what's known as their net back. Would you agree with that, or is this hitting the consumer? Well, it's both, right? The um, the the tr- the tariffs and the embargoes on, on crude and refined products were designed to be leaky on purpose, right? The last thing policymakers in the EU and the U.S. wanted was to shut off supply of a critical fuel to the global economy. Instead, they wanted to reduce the net back, as you said, to, to, to Russia. And we've seen we've seen the benchmark Urals barrels, which is uh, you know the, the Russian blend blend of crude, that's fallen to roughly 50% of the price of Brent, the global benchmark. And so Russia is definitely earning less per barrel of fuel, but the rest of us are still paying more because of the longer trade routes and the the higher transportation costs to get that crude to India and China, and then from those refineries back to to its end markets. So the, the policy goals are being achieved, right, in reducing the net back uh, to China while keeping the global economy somewhat adequately supplied with, with critical fuels. 
Yeah, it's easy to take apart this and be critical of it, but you're absolutely right. I think that in some ways that what they've done here is, I won't call it genius, but I, I think they've created something that, I mean, all the years that I've been watching oil, I've never seen before. Um, and they have found a way to be leaky. I mean, crude oil supplies to the world out of Russia are probably about normal. Uh, the uh, the uh, cap, the price cap and the EU restrictions on diesel and other products just fell into place earlier this month in February. So I guess we're going to get a real test of it. Let's change subjects a little bit because, unfortunately, we don't have we still have lots of time, but it always goes too fast. I'm going to make a full confession here. You know, I was always a classic free trader, and I still think tariffs are a very bad policy decision. But when I look at the events of the last couple of years and the supply chains that were broken and distorted, you know, the idea of, I'm going to kill myself for saying this, of industrial policy doesn't quite give me the, the willies like maybe it used to. So when I look at the moves by the U.S., to ensure a semiconductor industry in the U.S. Uh, you know, I, I was astounded at the start of COVID to learn that 90% of the world's antibiotics come from China. I had no idea. And when you see that and you're coming off the supply chain disruptions that we've just had, it starts to maybe argue that a government role here is not necessarily uh, something to, to, to go crazy over and view it as a creeping socialism. I don't know. Tell me if I'm wrong or right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to weigh in on 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 whether um, industrial policy is in that good or bad. The fact is, it's happening, right? And uh, you know, uh, free market economies throughout the developed world have taken the view that they need to protect themselves and their critical industries by reshoring, by friendshoring, by holding more inventory, um, and all that's driving higher volatility. And so, when we we see the rubber meeting the road, is with our core clients, the companies that are buying uh, fuel or grain or metals products uh, where it's produced and then transporting it to the, to the customer who's going to extrude it into, uh, extrude it into a final product or refine it into gasoline or, or do something else with it. Um, and there, you know, we've seen this increased volatility, increased supply chain disruptions really be a boom to the global commodity trading sector because those, are the, those trading companies are the ones who are best positioned to provide reliable, flexible service to the end customers because they're not just supplying from one single supplier in one country. They're going out and they're, they're buying product from a diverse array of producers and then blending specific, uh, bl blending to a specification that specifically suits an end, an end refiner or smelter or whatever it is. And so, you know, I think we're seeing kind of a, a new golden age for commodity traders where, you know, as these supply chains get more complicated, more complex, and more prone to disruption, having someone um, who understands the complexity, who has the relationships on the customer and supplier side, and then thirdly, very importantly, has access to the capital to execute on that, those are the players that are helping to smooth out these vol the, the volatile markets and keep the, the global economy running. And those are our core clients, of course. Well, is, is nearshoring or reshoring just kind of the flavor of the week, or do you, do you see it really happening? Yeah. So from, uh, from 2011 to 2020 to 2019, right? So this is pre-pandemic. Um, uh, sorry, Chinese imports, uh, goods of U.S. imports of Chinese goods uh, fell by about 4% of total input, imports. So even before COVID, before these supply chain disruptions, before the trade wars took over, um, 
we were starting to diversify those supply chains. And a lot of that is economics 101, right? <laughs> China joined the WTO back in 2001. And at that point, uh, the median wage for, for a Chinese worker was about $1,600 a year. Um, fast forward to 2021, um, those wages are up about 15 times to around $16,000, $17,000 a year per worker. At the same time, though, the productivity per worker in China has only increased by about three three x, and so the arbitrage opportunity from from lower um, from from lower employee costs is really shrinking and and starting to disappear entirely. And so I'm not sure friendshoring or reshoring is really the driving factor. It's it's really finding the new lowest cost of production, and that's where we've seen com- countries like uh, Vietnam in particular, but also. Uh, Thailand and India take a growing share of U.S. imports because they now have that kind of largest spread between uh, largest productivity spread, if you'd like to call it. Right, because if you're if you're getting stuff now from Vietnam or Thailand or India that might have come from China, you certainly have diversified, but you haven't nearshored. That's for sure. I mean, that, that, that those countries are probably further away than China. So it does sound to me like if that's the case that U.S. companies are okay with having their supply lines still extended many, many miles, but they don't necessarily want those many, many miles to be largely into one place. Yeah, I think it comes down to diversification, right? Um, diversification gives you the optionality to make sure you can consistently source the goods that you need. Um, and that's, again, where these intermediaries like trading companies, like logistics professionals, really become increasingly important because they're the folks making sure that your increasingly complex supply chains uh, and diversified supply chains continue to work throughout all these different disruptions. So it sounds to me like you represent companies that, you know, you talk about your clients that service uh, some sort of entity that needs knowledge uh, about the international supply chains, particularly international commodity chains. Is that a fair description of who your, who your clients are? Yeah. You know, our, our clients are, um, you know, the, global commodity traders, distributors, transportation companies uh, that, you know, have that have the knowledge of the supply chains um, and then have hopefully access to the capital to be able to execute on these arbitrage opportunities. Right. And so when you see uh, when you see huge price dislocations like euros barrels in Russia trading at a 50 percent discount almost to global Brent, um, there's a huge there's a huge economic incentive. Uh, to take those barrels, refine them, and move them to the U.S. or or or, you know, or the EU and, and other places. And so, throughout the last couple of years, we've we've been pretty busy. I think everyone everyone watching here has, if you're involved in the logistics and supply chain world. Uh, but we've been hard at work trying to make sure that our clients have the access to the capital because it's not just knowledge of uh, knowledge of the producers and suppliers and product specs um, and the supply chain. It's really being able to execute on it. And, um, you know, there's, there's a, a lack of capital flowing into this space. Capital is getting more expensive, um, as I'm sure everyone has read with rising interest rates. Will they continue to rise? You know, it's, it's unclear. Um, but, you know, there's rising costs of capital and a rising need for capital as supply chains grow longer. Do you think the world supply chains did sort of amazingly well in the light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine? You know, there was talk about starvation because of Ukraine's role, they used to call it the breadbasket of Europe, uh, all sorts of disasters. And really, quite frankly, you know, we've managed to avoid the worst of it so far. Are you are you a little bit stunned at how well supply chains did or working for customers, or, you know, working with clients who are 
really empowered or their, their, their value proposition is to help people negotiate these supply chains. Did you kind of figure that we'd get to this point? You know, when it comes to, to feeding, feeding the globe and feeding the global population, I, I am actually delightfully surprised that we're not on the brink of a large famine. I think there's still a lot of work to be done, uh, you know, to unlock, for example, to unlock Ukrainian wheat that's coming out of the Black Sea and make sure it's got easy, easy passage to West Africa and other places that desperately need those products. But by and large, the, glo- the global economy and policymakers did band together um, to try to to try to smooth out some of the volatility and get product to where it needs to go. Now that says nothing of the fact that U.S. and global inflation hit a 30, 40 year high, right? So there have been a lot of pain for a lot of people. Um, but I think you're right. You're, it could have been significantly worse. Yeah, having to pay higher prices is not fun. Not having the products on the shelves is even worse. Yeah, and and that and that was the fear. So. Hate to end this, but John, we're going to have you back in some sort of freight waves platform sometime in the future. We want to thank John Harms, a, a vice president at uh, Brown Brothers Harriman with a focus on commodities. Uh, he's been our guest here today on Global Supply Chain, uh, Freight Waves Global Supply Chain Week. Uh, please stay tuned for more FGSW. I'm John Kingston. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, John.